Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Swearing in of the president uh, for his inauguration. This is kind of an unusual one because uh, technically the government is closed today because it's Sunday, right? But according to the Constitution, the president has to be sworn in today. And so there's going to be sort of a series of celebrations and a, a private and a public. So technically this morning as we came into church, we were listening to the radio and they happened to just uh, briefly have on the swearing in of the president of the United States. On the presidential podium, whenever our president, I think the last time that happened was when President Reagan was president, when one of his uh, inaugurations were actually happened on a Sunday. The presidential podium, whenever the presidential president speaks, has the presidential seal on it. When Air Force One, uh, if you ever see Air Force One, you will see the presidential seal. Actually, the presidential seal that we see on the podium and the airplane is a little bit more of a, uh, a formality, I guess, if you will. Technically, the presidential seal, uh, the actual seal die, the actual seal itself, is only used on correspondence from the President of the United States to Congress, closing the envelopes with wax seals. And this has been the primary use throughout the seal's history. Uh, the actual correspondence by the President to Congress and the document would be uh, sealed with wax and stamped with a seal. Now, in uh, antiquity or in, in you know, ancient days and stuff, this was very important to use the seal. In fact, some of the most uh, prominent archaeological discoveries from Bible lands are seals. Oftentimes they're a ring, like a signet ring that's used to seal something. Uh, we have a seal. You know, we have a church seal. I actually happen to have it in my possession right here. We have an official church seal of the Brian Bible Church that um, we don't use a whole lot. <laughs> but um, if we had to, and occasionally we have for an official document, uh, we can seal it with this, uh, with this seal. Um, it, it must mean something, I guess. You know. So, for example, if I, I have an ch- official piece of church letterhead, Right, and I'll write on here um, the holder of this letter is entitled. If I spell that right, to one cup of Starbucks <laughs> coffee provided. By our youth pastor <laughs> at your choice. And so I'll take this letter. Oh, Carol, you're here today. I didn't even see you. Good to have you. This is your first Sunday back. Oh, my goodness. So good to have you back. We've missed you. Good to have you back. But I'm not going to give you this because you probably can't go to Starbucks. <laughs> So I'm going to seal this with our church seal, which is our official stamp, right? The Brian Bible Church official church seal. 
So this letter has to mean something. The holder of this letter is entitled to one cup of Starbucks coffee provided by our youth pastor at your choice. Okay? <laughs> so what does that mean? That means that that letter is a guarantee. It is secure. It is official. It cannot be revoked by under any circumstances. And it will take place. <laughs> I could have given it to myself, but that wouldn't be too good. This morning, the concept of a seal is actually very, very important in our passage from Ephesians that we're going to look at together. So I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. We have some ones that we, uh, we make available to give to people. So if at any time you don't have a Bible or there's somebody you know that you think would enjoy having a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. This morning's passage, and if you're visiting with us today, and we're so glad you're here today. I just want to remind you that for all of you, uh, your presence here today is a ministry. It's an opportunity to encourage others, to, uh, to fellowship and, and, and it's, just, it's good to be together on this Lord's Day. And thank you for coming today. I know there are many places you could be and many things you could be doing. Uh, you've chosen to come today. And I want to thank you for being part of God's family today and just sharing this service with us. And everybody here, uh, you are so welcome. And we're just glad you're here this morning. In Ephesians chapter 1, and we are uh, looking through the book of Ephesians and studying it together during our sermon portion of our series our passage this morning is verses 11 through 14. But let's, let's have a word of prayer together as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word, uh, we pray that our hearts would be open to your word. Uh, Lord, this is your word. This is your revelation that you've given to us. And it's, it's such a gift to have uh, everything that we believe and everything that we practice as Christians to be based on and founded upon your word. And so we give this time to you and pray that your words might be heard and they might influence our lives as we walk with you. And Father, I also pray that there will be a person here today who really does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have never accepted the gift of salvation. Might you open their heart by the work of the Holy Spirit today to this wonderful good news of salvation and forgiveness for sins through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray in his name today. Amen. Now let's read this passage, first of all, and then we'll come back and, and uh, look at it a little bit more in detail. Uh, first, or, I'm sorry, Ephesians, first chapter, and we left off last week, we kind of left off at verse um, 11, so we're going to read verse 11, we're really going to move on uh, from verse 12 to 14, and this is a smaller section than we've been handling, and we will not just handle two, three verses a week, but this is a very important passage, and I did want to just kind of pause on this and make sure that we fully understand it. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
I would like to comment uh, briefly, first of all, just the, the wonderful message we find uh, in verse 12, where Paul says, well, I'm, I'm sorry, the end of verse 11, where he says that God has done everything according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And you know, this is good news today. Uh, you know, our God is a God who is a sovereign God. He has a will. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a purpose for our lives. And uh, God is in charge of the universe. He is on the throne. Amen? He's, and He's a good God. He's a God who loves us so much and cares for us and provided our salvation. He is a God of truth and holiness and of justice. And our God has a plan according to His will, according to His good pleasure. And we love that verse in Romans chapter 8. All things work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose. And I I like to include in that the idea that that it's when it says all things work together for good, it's for God's good. All things working out according for God's good, for God's purpose. And His good is our good because we belong to Him as His children, as members of the body of Christ. So I just want to pause and just, um, just give thanks today that God is in charge. God is, has a will. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And as we mentioned last week, in our individual lives, God already knows exactly the things you are going through today and the things that are challenging you today, the things that are at the forefront of your mind that are causing you maybe the most anxiety, the most concern. God already knows how it's going to work out. It's in God's hands. And you can have faith and trust that He will lead you and He will carry you through and He will walk with you each step of the way. I'm so encouraged when... You know, like I said, we had um, you know beautiful service last night. The flowers here from the wedding last night. Uh, we have a memorial service this week, and it's such an encouragement when dear friends of ours are called into glory. When we say when they die or go home to be with the Lord, that the reality is there is never a split second that they are out of God's care. There is never a moment or a breath where where they are no longer in God's care and 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 somehow are in this this place where where they are alone. No, they, we call it death, but the Bible says that, that God has already conquered death through Jesus Christ. He has overcome death, and He has given us life. And so the Bible clearly tells us that God has a plan for us, and God will care for us, and God will take us each step of the way, and there will never be a, a second we are out of God's care because He is a wonderful, sovereign God. In verse 12, Paul says, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ, those of us who first put our hope in Jesus Christ. And I, there is some discussion as to who is Paul talking about here. Is he talking about himself and the apostles that he's working with? Is he talking about the Jewish church in Jerusalem that, that first heard that gospel where it first went out? Or is it, as I think, a little more generic in the sense he's, he's talking to the believers. We, we are the first generation. This was the first generation, if you will, of Christians. This was the first generation of believers in Jesus Christ. As Paul writes this, about six, sometime in the mid, early to mid-60 A.D., um, is, is before he dies, obviously, while he was in prison in Rome, it's a prison epistle, he's talking to this first generation of believers. And I think that's when he says we, it's a sort of this inclusive term. We who are the first to place our hope in Christ. And notice what he says here, at the end of verse 12, and you'll notice it's at the very end of verse 14, we saw this last week as well, might be for the praise of His glory. 
And that's our last thought this morning as we conclude, so we'll come back to that. Verse 13. And you also, the we and the you, we who are the first to hope in Christ, and you also, Ephesians, as part of that generation, as part of that uh, family of God. He's writing to the church, which is at Ephesus. He's writing to the church, the believers in Jesus Christ. And he reminds them, and I, and I want to remind you today that this is the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You also were included in Christ, first of all, when you heard the word of truth, that is, the gospel of your salvation. Secondly, having believed. Thirdly, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And we should never tire of and never draw back from uh, sharing the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. We have sung about this morning. Chris, did you write that song, the first one that you sang? I thought you did. It was a beautiful song. And the songs that were shared with us and that we shared together today in the choir, they are all talking about the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and how that affects our lives and what that means to us. Jesus Christ. And I just I want to just... I want to just pause. I don't want to ever take for granted that there may be a person who's come today who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those of us who are Christians, we never tire of telling this story. The cross behind me is a reminder. Jesus Christ came to earth. Fully God and fully man. We just celebrated that at Christmas, the incarnation. He was fully human, but without sin. But He was also fully God. And because of that, he went to the cross of Calvary and He paid the price for my sin. He suffered for my sins. I, I, I told you this morning, our God is a wonderful God. And our God is a just and a holy God. And because of that, God cannot, because He is holy and cannot compromise His holiness, cannot just say, oh, it doesn't matter about sin. Uh, we'll just all forget about it. No, sin has to be taken care of. It has to be paid for. We have a sense of justice. You have a sense of justice. And we are made in God's image. And so because of that, Jesus Christ went to the cross at Calvary. And as He hung on that cross at Calvary, and in those hours of darkness where He cried out, My God, My God, why, has you, why have You forsaken Me? He was suffering the punishment for my sin. He took my, the price I should pay for my sin on Himself. And He died. And that's why we sing about the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He was placed in the tomb. And God, by the power of God, He rose from the dead and conquered death and conquered sin. And because He paid the price of my sin, and because He conquered the grip of death and the power of death, He is able to offer to us forgiveness for sins and eternal life. And He offers that to you today. And if you have never received Christ as your Savior, this is the Gospel. Look what Paul says here. Ephesians. You heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. The word gospel simply means good news. It's the word we get evangelism from. And so you have just heard the gospel of salvation. I have told it to you as the Bible clearly proclaims it. This is the gospel of salvation. That Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, died on the cross, paid for your sins, rose from the dead, and offers you forgiveness and eternal life if you will accept His payment for your sins and receive Him as your Savior. That's the gospel of your salvation. And Paul says to the Ephesians, you heard it. And when you heard it, the gospel of your salvation, you believed. And you'll notice he does not say, 
you went through a time and a, a period of time where for a couple of years you were tested and you were able to accomplish and you lived by the, by the Ten Commandments and everything. No, you believed. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer said. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Paul says, you heard the gospel and you believe. These people at Ephesus, these people that we talked about the first week that lived in this port city. At the, at, at, it historically was a port city, but because of the, because of their, the, the, the river receding, the port receding, actually in Paul's day, it was really a ways from the actual water. You go there today, you can't even see the water from Ephesus. But historically, it was a port city. It was a very important Roman provincial capital. It was also, actually, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, Ephesus was also known for its commitment to the magic arts, to a cult. It was the temple of Diana was there. And these people, Jew and Gentile, they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of God, believed. And they, and they came together and they formed this, this church that, that Paul spent time with them and taught them and grounded them and left elders there. And he went on his way and this church was, was, was founded and it grew. They believed. They heard the gospel. They believed. That's your story today if you're here and you're a Christian. If that's not your story today, it could be your story before you walk out these doors today by doing what the Ephesians did. By believing. Not working. Not earning. Not doing something for our church. Not giving money. Not being baptized. Not making um, uh, commitments of saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, you heard the gospel. And you believed the gospel. And when you believe, at the moment of your belief, and this is clear throughout the scriptures, the, the Holy Spirit did several things for you. The Holy Spirit, which is also God, uh, is deity as well. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And listen, it is not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three are equally God. They all share the same essence or substance of deity, but they are three distinct persons or personas. That's the mystery of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit... When I became a believer, when you became a believer, if you were to receive Christ today, the Holy Spirit would do this for you. The Holy Spirit marks you with a seal. He Himself becomes the seal. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption. This is why at our church we teach what we call, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning in our class, we teach what we call the doctrine of Eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. Historically, in, in Christian um, uh, vocabulary, this word perseverance of the saints, which simply means this. When you become a new creation in Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, you will always be a Christian. Because you did not get your Christianity by what you did or achieved, and you do not maintain it by what you do or achieve. You are a Christian because you are in Christ, because God has forgiven you, because Christ has paid for your sin. Behold, you are a new creation. Behold, all things are new. You are a Christian. You are a believer. You are part of God's family. And you will be forever. And the reason you will be forever is because you didn't earn it in the first place, and you can't undo it and re-earn it. 
Because it's by God's grace. And you notice what Paul says here. And this word seal, you are sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what does this seal mean? There's a couple of scriptures that might help us understand what this meant in the Roman world. Go back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Go back to the story of the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his burial. We meet the first day of the week on Sunday because this is the day that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But in Matthew chapter 27, we have the account of the on Good Friday when, when Jesus died on the cross. And we read as, a, as, as, as he has died and he's going to be placed in this, in this tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And you'll notice in verse 62, the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and said, basically, you know, we remember what he said. We remember he said at the end of verse 63, after three days I will rise again. So we need to do something to secure this tomb. Now, you've probably all seen pictures of the tomb, and it, and it most likely was this. It was like a, this is, it's like a cave cut into the soft rock. And in that cave, you would go inside, and there would be places where the, where the dead body would lay. And then after a period of time, the, the bones would be collected, placed in a box, and placed in back. And the next one would be laid there. It was a family tomb. A vault, if you will. Um, uh, and, and, and so... This one had never been used before. And they're going to place Jesus in there. And they're, and they're, they're concerned that someone's going to go in and steal his body and say, look, it, he's gone. He rose from the dead. And so they ask for the Romans' help. And so Pilate gives in, verse 65. And Pilate says, take a guard. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. You, go ahead, do whatever you want. So they went. They made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So when the Romans put that seal there, this is not so much the idea of some type of a cement or, or glue sealing, you know, like, a, like you might take a, uh, you know, something and, and run a bead of glue around something and seal it. That's probably not what they're talking about. What probably they're talking about is they rolled the stone in place and it fell into place. And then they put a Roman seal with wax and stamped it where the stone came together with the entrance to the door, put that wax and sealed it with the Roman seal, just like our church seal, that basically had the power of the Roman government that meant Nobody dare tamper with this seal, because if you do, you are tampering with the Roman government. Don't you dare break this seal. And so they put that seal and they sealed that door and they posted a guard. But of course, it didn't make any difference. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't need to go out the door. The door was opened by the angels so the humans could go in and look and see he was gone. But that's what it was about. They were sealed with the Roman seal. In Revelation chapter 5, you see this is a very prominent theme in the book of Revelation. If you go to Revelation, the very end of your Bible, and in this particular section of, Roman, of Revelation chapter 5, and the following chapters and verses all have to do with this. In chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat... We're jumping into the middle of a context, I know that. On the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals 
and open the scrolls. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept and I wept because no one was found. And then, of course, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, who can break the seals. And he sees these seven documents, this scroll with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with, seal with the scroll with seven seals. Again, not glue or paste, but the, the stamp of the seal that nobody had the authority to break that seal open. And the rest of this particular section of uh, Revelation deals with the breaking of these seals. If you go to Revelation chapter 7, you will see another use of this. And this has to do with the remnant or the 144,000. And he says about this remnant or those who are the faithful during this terrible time of tribulation. You probably have heard about the mark of the beast. That those who are serving the Antichrist are marked with the mark of the beast. The 666. But also the remnant or the faithful, the Jewish believers at this point, they are also marked. And notice it says here that uh, verse 3 do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Finally, in Revelation, you come to the very toward the end, chapter 20, and you have another use of a seal, chapter 20 in verse 3. And this is during the thousand year kingdom when Satan is put away. And it says he threw, verse 3 of, verse, of chapter 20, he threw the, the dragon, that is Satan, into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were over or ended. So with that seal of God, nobody had the right, no angelic creature had any right to break that seal and let Satan out until God himself broke that seal. The 144,000 were sealed somehow with the seal of God that only God could break. No one could touch it. It belonged to God. So we see throughout the Bible this, and we'll see it in the Old Testament as well, the Hebrew equivalent, this idea of a seal. That things, what does a seal do? What does a seal do? Even in the you know, basic sense, my, our church seal here. It has to do with security. When the tomb was sealed, nobody could tamper with it. When Satan was sealed, nobody could tamper with it. You do not tamper with the seal of the authority. When the president seals a document to the Congress, that is very important, and you better not tamper with it. When the Roman emperor sent correspondence to Ephesus for some reason and had a document and sealed it, if along the way the courier of that document wanted to take a little peek inside and see what was in that document and broke that seal, it, he was done. He was killed. There were no questions asked. You do not tamper with the seal of the government, the Roman government. When you get a letter in the mail, if your name is on the outside, you are the only one who has a legal right to break that seal and open it. It has to do with security. The seal is security. The seal indicates ownership. I am the one, if I seal it, and I send it to Gary, and I put Gary's name on it, now Gary is the one who owns that. It belongs to him. Ownership, security, and a finished 
transaction. When I write a letter, you know, I've got the phrase I put for today, signed, sealed, delivered. When I sign it off, when I put it in, and I seal the envelope, and I deliver it, it's a finished transaction. It's done. There's nothing else to add to it. It is finished. Signed, sealed, delivered. Finished transaction. Ownership, security. What does this have to do with our salvation? What does this have to do with, with me and with you? Paul says, we'll go back to Ephesians. Paul says twice in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you are marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. At the point of your salvation, the instant you receive Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit Himself, God Himself, indwells you. And that becomes the seal of God. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, you are marked with a seal. When God looks at me today, with my humanity, you know, we're all human. And we, we've talked about we are, we are free from the bondage and slavery of sin. We are not fully free from the experience of sin because we are in a sinful world still. But when God looks at you, when God looks at me, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are sealed. It is the Holy Spirit. When I walk out this door today, when you walk out this door today, wherever I go, to my neighborhood, when you go to your place of employment, to your neighborhood, to your school, whatever you're going to do this week, whatever you're going to do today, God is going with you because the Holy Spirit is in you. You are marked with the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That you belong to God. It's a finished transaction. You are secure. And you are owned by God. Now look at the air language he uses. Verse 14. He, he sort of slips in another metaphor as well. Not only is the Holy Spirit a seal, just as Christ's tomb was sealed with the Roman seal, the Holy Spirit also becomes God's down payment or earnest money on my life and on your life. That's what he says here. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He is the earnest money. When you, when you give earnest money to say, yes, I am going to purchase that. Hold that for me. Uh, I'm going to purchase this. I'm going to get the rest of the money somehow. If it's a, if it's a, if it's a, uh, you know, if real estate and you're working with a bank, if it's something you bought, you know, from somebody and say, yes, I am earnestly, I want to buy that a tape recorder. Okay, I want to buy that record. I want to buy that CD. I want to buy that car. I want to buy that uh, computer. You give them the money and say, I'll be back with the other X amount. And if I don't come back, this is my guarantee. You can keep it. I'm that serious about it. You are guaranteeing you are coming back for that. And if you don't come back, you lose your earnest money. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit not only is the seal, the Holy Spirit is God's earnest money. Anybody that deals in real estate, you know what I'm talking about. If you've dealt in real estate, this is God's earnest money that he is earnestly committed to getting this possession. It belongs to him. Amen? The, amen. The Holy Spirit is God's earnest money that we belong to him. And listen, friends, God knows how to take care of what belongs to him. God knows how to take care. And God has bought you. God has purchased you. God has sealed you. 
and you have the Holy Spirit as God's guarantee that you are going to get where you belong finally. In reality, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are here on earth. And God is guaranteed we are going to spend eternity with Him, worshiping, serving, and being with our Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity because the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee. Paul uses this language. We are, we are, we are God's own. Paul says in Ephesians, Grieve not the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. And then he says it again. If you look at 2 Corinthians, if you go back the other way in your Bible a little bit, you go back a few books, and you'll notice the 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as he writes to this church at Corinth, early, one of Paul's early epistles, earlier epistles, and he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22, same thing. Verse 21, Now it is God, notice this, it is God who makes us both, both us and you stand firm in Christ. Notice that. It's not you yourself that work up enough energy that you're finally going to be able to stand in Christ. It is God who is at work in you. The Bible says both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is work in you. God has made you to stand. He anointed us. And He set His seal of ownership on us. And He put His Spirit in our hearts as what? A deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So finally this morning, as we finish up in Ephesians chapter 1, what is the purpose of all this? What is the purpose? Why does God do this for us? Why has God given us the Holy Spirit? Why has God sealed me with the Holy Spirit? I look back over my 60 years of life, and I I became a believer when when I was a young boy. So I've got, you know... 50 plus years of walking with, with Christ. And, and over those 50 plus years, I look at my life and say, why would God want me for all eternity? There's nothing in me or nothing about myself that merits God's favor or grace that I deserve to be with Him for all eternity. That I deserve right now to be saved and be a part of His family and to be in Jesus Christ. It's because He chose to love me. And by His grace, and He called me, and He, and he saved me. And he made the gospel clear to me. And I received Christ as my Savior. When I did, I was marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit. It became God's deposit that guarantees. And look what it says. It guarantees. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14. It is a deposit guaranteeing. Right? You buy something today and it comes with a guarantee. What does that mean? If it, if, if it breaks, we'll fix it. If you drop it, you fix, you fix it. But if it, if it breaks, if something goes wrong, we will fix it. We buy extended guarantees to ensure that they will take care of their product. Listen, if God guarantees it, God guarantees it. And God guarantees my inheritance, our inheritance together as a church, as a universal church, the body of Christ, and individually as Christian, God guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Until that day. There is a day coming, friend, the day of resurrection. The day of resurrection when the Lord returns for all those who are His. The dead in Christ will rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be gathered together with Him. There is a day coming when we are going to all, in all reality, 
fully experience our redemptive state, free from any experience of sin, to be with God forever. Why? Because God has guaranteed it with the Holy Spirit that is with you right where you sit today, is going to go out those doors with you, and every place you go this week, God's Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit is not going to stay here till next Sunday and greet you again. We are the church. And we are going with the Holy Spirit. And the, and, the, and the presence of God is going to be all over Puget Sound region today, all over our neighborhoods, all over our schools, all over our workplaces. No matter where it is, the, God is there because we are there. And He is in us in a very real sense. Why? 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 So that you and I can take pride in how good we are, that we are such wonderful Christians, that we, are, we, we, have, we have finally reached a point where we finally get it. No. Why? What's it say? To the praise of His glory. To the praise of God's glory. This is a wonderful truth. It's one that we preach unashamedly at our church. That we are eternally saved because God has put His seal of ownership on us. We are marked until the day of redemption. We are not marked until the day we fail and have to get it back again. We are marked until the day of redemption. Is this a dangerous doctrine? If you understand, I want to say that carefully how I say that. It could be if it's misused. Is this a doctrine that gives you license to live any way you want and sin? Because if, because if we're saved for eternity, it doesn't make any difference if we sin. It doesn't make any difference what we do because we're saved anyway, so who cares? Paul responds to that in Romans chapter 6. We just we finished it Sunday night, Romans chapter 6. Twice in that chapter, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace? Paul's response in the King, King James translation, I memorized it, two words. You know what it is? God forbid. No. If that's how you're thinking, then something is wrong. And if that's your thinking today, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. I am saved eternally. I can go out and do anything I want this because it doesn't matter. Paul's response is simply, God forbid. If you truly are saved... How could you think that way? That is not normal. And you may have to ask yourself. You may have to ask yourself. If that's, if that's truly your response, you may have to ask yourself, friend, do you really know Jesus Christ? Because that is not normal. That is not the way it's supposed to work. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you will be convicted of sin. And you will not be settled. And you will not be happy. And you will not be living in peace if you choose to live that way. It also tells me this. It is a reminder for each of us that it's an awesome thing that where I go, the Holy Spirit goes this week. I cannot check the Holy Spirit at the door and say, you stay here, I'm going to go do this, and when I come back, we'll pick up again. No. Where I go, the Holy Spirit goes. What I see, the Holy Spirit is there. What I'm thinking in my heart, the Holy Spirit is there. I am marked by the Holy Spirit of God. God gives us the power to live a life free from the bondage of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And this week, friends, in our humanity, in our imperfections, in our weaknesses, in our struggles and challenges, yes, we can live lives pleasing to God for one reason. You have been given the Holy Spirit of God in a very real sense as a seal, as a guarantee, and as the power to live a life pleasing to God. You are marked with the Holy Spirit, sealed to the day of redemption. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't cheer your heart today, it should. It's good news. It's good news that God loves us so much that He has done that for us. Let's close our service with our final hymn. It's a good song. It's a song that really is appropriate today with this thought from Ephesians. Next week we're going to share communion together. And you're welcome. We encourage you to come. Communion here is for all members of the body of Christ, not just people with Tim Bereans. So why don't you come next week. We'll share communion and we'll continue a shorter message from the book of Ephesians as we worship together. Hallelujah. That's a great song. It's a good song. Good truth. I remember when I was in junior high and I was raised in this church. And so I remember sitting down in the junior high youth group, junior high crusaders. Probably wouldn't use that today, I guess. But anyway, that's where we were, junior high crusaders. And I was down there. Actually, the room right below my office. Right now where my office is, right below... I remember sitting down there in junior high, going through that period of time in my life. I was, a, I was saved in grade school, but really struggling. Is it really? Am I, and I can remember struggling for several weeks about that, back and forth, and even, I better do it again. You know, I praise the Lord. I praise the Lord that from this pulpit, our pastor kept preaching the truth of God's Word. Because it's such a wonderful thing to have that assurance not, not for misuse, but to go to bed at night and know that we belong to God and that we are going to be with Him for eternity. I never got it by earning it in the first place and I don't keep it by working for it. It is because God is gracious and He has saved us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for the truth of Your Word. I want to thank you for the freedom we have in our country to proclaim it, to preach it, and to teach it. I want to thank you for this congregation that has been here today, Lord, and shared in this worship service. They've lifted their voices, their hearts to you. Now, we're not perfect, Father. We will be the first to admit it. Uh, we are human. We struggle. We have our challenges. We'll grow this week. We'll walk with you. But, Lord, I just want to thank you today. For me and for all my brothers and sisters here today, that you have finished our salvation and that we are free to serve you, to love you, to walk with you because Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross at Calvary. We leave this place rejoicing in your wonderful and amazing love. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people can say it together. Amen.